It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. <laughs> making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. A Louisiana federal judge has made it official. Title 42, the policy allowing asylum seekers to be turned away at the border, will remain in place until the legal actions play out. And that's likely to drag well into next year. 
The mayor of Yuma, Arizona, Douglas Nichols, says the judge made the right decision because the federal government is not ready to handle a surge at the border. Title 42 does need to go away. Um, we just need to be prepared for it. And I asked nine months ago D from DHS, hey, what are we doing? What's the plan? Because we all know it's going away. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Leon, explain why the judge said the Biden administration can't rescind Title 42. Well, the judge had a few bases for saying that the Title 42 rescission could not be put in place. And basically, the first and the main rationale is that the judge said that the CDC needed to use the APA's notice and comment process in order to revoke Title 42, which is interesting because you didn't need to actually use the notice and comment process to implement Title 42. So it's a strange sort of logic that would say you would need to actually use notice and comment to rescind Title 42. But that's one sort of logic. And then secondly, the judge said that the CDC's rationale is overbroad in that it would apply to every rule issued under Title 42, regardless of the circumstances, and that that shouldn't be happening. And it needed to be a much more carefully, narrowly tailored rule in the way it, it rescinded Title 42 so that it would keep certain threats that are based on COVID-19 from coming into the United States. And then it also said that an agency response to a dangerous and largely unknown disease may justify emergency action to dispense with the rulemaking process, but they haven't explained how now the present circumstances prevent it from, now that things are calmer, using the required notice and comment process to rescind that rule. So basically, it's mostly about notice and comment here. That is the main reason why the decision was to keep Title 42 in place. The White House says it's going to comply with the court's order, but it's going to appeal the decision. Does this indicate a prolonged legal battle that will most likely end up at the Supreme Court? Well, yes. And what's very interesting about what's occurred, sort of the unreported nugget for whatever reason out of all of this, is that even though the Biden administration has appealed, they appear not to have asked for a stay of the district court's ruling. And so what that means is they're not taking the fast track on appeal. They're taking the slow track on appeal, which means that theoretically speaking, Title 42 could be in place until well into 2023, maybe the middle of 2023, or at least at the bare minimum until a notice and comment rulemaking can take place, or Perhaps the COVID national emergency is rescinded as a whole, to which point then if the entire COVID national emergency is rescinded, perhaps it's easier to then move forward. But the Biden administration hasn't said that they are committed to removing the COVID national emergency declaration anytime in the foreseeable future. Well, this brings me to a question I believe I've asked you before. Is the Biden administration secretly happy or relieved that this judge saved Title 42? Well, the only implication that one can draw from the fact that they're not moving for a 
say of the district judge's order is that they want Title 42 to remain in place. And I'm surprised they're not getting more pushback from the immigration rights advocacy community on this side, because at the end of the day, if you were really intent on eliminating Title 42 as a policy, you'd be pushing for a, a say of this, but apparently there's just no desire to, to move for a say, which means you'd go through the normal Fifth Circuit process, which could take six months to a year, and then the Supreme Court process, which could take another six months to a year. And so maybe if you expedited those cases and you asked for expedited briefing and the court granted it, you could get this into early 2023. But we are talking now about a 2023 timeframe for the rescission of Title 42. When it gets to the Supreme Court, when, not if, is there any indication how the justices would rule based on prior rulings? Well, I think it's going to be very interesting whether the judges think at the end of the day that this CDC declaration as to who can come across the border is reviewable by the courts. And I don't think in the end they will find that it's reviewable, but I think it's going to be a long time until they get there. And the question is, will this be mooted out by the time a decision is going to happen on Title 42? And I think that's what we don't know. We don't know what the world is going to look like by the time the Supreme Court would get to a decision. And could this end up becoming moot? But I don't think that the Supreme Court is going to want to have a decision in place saying that it can overrule the director of the CDC with regard to declarations on when diseases require restrictions on the border and when they don't. But, you know, I've been surprised before. Leon, there are three things the Biden administration is doing or saying that seem to conflict with each other. So, first of all, on Tuesday, the Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, said we'll be increasing the number of criminal prosecutions to meet the challenge because the fact of the matter is there are more cases that warrant criminal prosecution than cases that are being brought. Yet, an ICE memo last month encouraged its prosecutors to use their discretion to focus on deporting migrants who pose a public safety or national security threat while not initiating or dismissing cases against those who are not. And third, a new rule breaks away from the framework governing the credible fear screening process with a lower bar for asylum seekers to clear. Those things seem to contradict his statement. What actually is happening? What are they doing? So here's the basic issue, and I'll take you through the steps to explain what is meant by all of this. Right now, if a person arrives at the border and they're a single adult, and that's still to this day, people talk about all these things, Cubans, Ukrainians, families, minors, but still to this day, something continues to hold true that has held true for many, many years, which is that the majority of people who try to come across the southern border remains, that continues to remain, single adults from Mexico. So the question is, when single adults from Mexico try to cross the southern border into the United States, what Secretary Mayorkas is saying is that right now they're being excluded under Title 42 for the most part and being sent back to Mexico. So they're not being allowed to make their claims. 
But what's happening is you do that, but people continue to try crossing a second time, a third time, a fourth time, et cetera. And so that cycle is going to continue unless you actually start to prosecute those individuals and say, if you're going to cross the border multiple times, there's going to be jail time associated with this, which serves two purposes, one can imagine. The first purpose is, well, if a person is in jail, then they can't continue crossing because their body's in a jail. That's number one, obviously. But second, conceivably, it also serves a deterrent for other people who would do this if they find out that people who have tried this recently are now in jail for six months or a year or a year and a half or whatever. I mean, technically, the penalty for illegal reentry a second time can be up to 10 years in prison. So this is serious prison time you could actually spend. I don't know that a judge is ever going to give somebody 10 years in prison, but theoretically, that's the possible sentence. And so if you knew that people were getting 10 years in prison, for instance, or coming over a second or third time, then that would certainly serve a deterrent for people from doing that. That is a different issue than what's known as prosecutorial discretion in the removal context, which is what do you do with people already here who've been here with some amount of time already invested in the United States? And the question is, what do you consider that, a year, two years, three years, four years, five years? And here is where the secretary is saying to the ICE attorney, use prosecutorial discretion to only remove those people who've been now in the United States for a while if they are people with criminal issues or some other public safety or dangerousness or something like that or some violation of the integrity of the immigration system. That's what those memos talk about. So even though they're called prosecutorial discretion, what they mean is who gets picked to be put into deportation proceedings as opposed to this first issue as is who's getting picked to actually be thrown in jail for breaking criminal laws regarding crossing the border illegally. So that's the first and the second thing. And then the third thing has to do with if you're not just a border crosser who's trying to cross the border, but you're actually someone who's trying to seek asylum and is actually credibly coming forward with some asylum claim that could be reasonably understood in the law that's cognizable, then what the administration is trying to do is to streamline that process to get as many meritorious cases out of the pool as possible so that the immigration courts can focus on the questionable cases and try to get those adjudicated much more quickly because now there's a four or five year backlog on those cases. And so people who are ultimately going to lose are either in America for four or five years before they lose, which is not ideal, or they never even show up to court. And then we never find out if they win or lose. But that's that's also how the system is supposed to work. So the idea is if you could identify very quickly up front, hey, this person is, for instance, someone fleeing from the Ukraine who has, you know, basically already been injured by Russian soldiers and has been told, we're going to kill you if you come back, et cetera. That might be someone whose case is so simple that you can just give them asylum very quickly and you don't have to put that person in the five-year queue, which makes the line shorter for these more difficult cases. So that's the three questions you're talking about, (laughs) how they work in tandem. 
So then, in fact, the government is lowering the standard, though, to significant possibility in the credible fear process? Well, that has always been the standard, meaning what happens is if you show up to the border and you don't have a visa, you don't have any permission to be here, you're just showing up on your own, and the government then says, well, why are you here? And you say, I'm here because I'm afraid of going back to my country. I'm going to be persecuted. Then the government does a three-step process. The first step of the process is they say, well, that's fine, but we're going to put you in removal proceedings. So that's it, you know, that's called expedited removal, meaning the government says, you don't get to be here, you're out. But then there's a defense expedited removal, which is, hey, don't do this because I'm going to be persecuted. So then how do you put that defense forward? You have to make your claim and you have to prove that you have a credible fear of persecution. And so the question then is, well, what is the standard for determining whether one has a credible fear? And that standard is this significant possibility of removal. The Trump administration had tried, sorry, significant possibility of persecution in your own country on the basis of one of the protected grounds, which is race, religion, national origin, social group, or political opinion. And so the Trump administration tried to increase that, but really this idea that that standard has been increased or decrease isn't true. It's always been the significant possibility standard because that's what the standard was in the regulation. But what the Trump administration had tried to do is to basically keep issuing memos repeatedly saying, hey, this significant possibility standard doesn't mean this. It means this. And basically tried by sort of implication to raise the standard, which did work in the sense that Many more cases were denied at that front stage. But the point is, if at the front stage you get a credible fear determination, then what that means is you get a hearing that's supposed to decide whether you get to stay or not. And that is a different standard of do you have a well-founded fear of persecution in the future in your own country on the basis of a protected ground. And so what the Biden administration is changing here is they're saying, you don't start an immigration court anymore. You start with a non-adversarial interview. And if your case is meritorious enough to win in this non-adversarial interview, then we're going to take you out of the backlog of the immigration court, and you're just going to win up front. Whereas if your case isn't strong enough to win up front, then you will go like normal to the immigration court. So that's what's changing in the current environment. Is it the case yeah. that almost all migrants who come to this country claim credible fear? It's something above 90 percent of people who, when they get apprehended, think that they have a credible fear. But is it all? It's not all. But 90 percent, rather than rather than saying that the number is – and by the way, by 90 percent, I mean 90 percent of non-Mexican crossers. Some decent number of Mexican crossers don't end up asserting a credible fear. I haven't seen the stats on this most recent crop of Mexican crossers, but of the people not from Mexico, it is over 90% that actually claim that they are going to be persecuted in their home country. Because what other reasons can they give that would allow them to stay? No, there are no other reasons. Unless you come with a visa, you're going to be deported unless you can claim you have a credible fear of being persecuted in your home country. Texas filed a motion on Monday. 
asking a federal court to stop the Biden administration from implementing this latest rule at the border. So what do they want to happen? So the Biden administration is implementing this rule by the end of the month that would then change the adjudication from an immigration court judge to an immigration asylum officer and make it move it from an adversarial to a non-adversarial process. And basically the state of Texas saying, don't do that because that's going to lead to many more asylum cases getting granted. And that's going to put a strain on the state of Texas. And the toughest part about the state of Texas's claim is, well, why is that a problem if more asylum cases get granted as long as they actually meet the standard of asylum? I think they're trying to imply that these asylum officers won't actually do a good job of vetting an asylum claim. But that seems very strange because these asylum officers already do this every day. The only difference is their current role is to adjudicate asylum claims for people who enter legally. Thanks so much, Leon. That's Leon Fresco of Holland and Knight. Cryptocurrencies have been suffering through some challenging times, but one area is continuing to surge. Cryptocurrency litigation is soaring, up more than 50% since the start of 2020. Joining me is Sam Skolnick of Bloomberg Law, who's written about this. Start by telling us about the number of lawsuits over crypto. Yeah, so currently there are uh, roughly 400 actions, be they private lawsuits, government suits, that are are, are current in this space. Um, That number has grown consistently over the years, according to at least um, one guy at a firm called Morrison & Cohen, a mid-sized firm in New York, that keeps track of these lawsuits regarding crypto companies. About half of the 400, though, he said that there's been a real explosion in one portion of this. That has to do with class action lawsuits, other private litigation. About half of that 400 number is is roughly 200. That number has grown um, exponentially over just the last few years. And interestingly, June, just a, a quick search of this litigation, of this private litigation, shows some pretty big names attached to some of these suits. And you don't have to follow legal news specifically to know some of these names. For example, in January, there was a a class action. I think it's still awaiting certification, but a putative class action against Kim Kardashian, the uh, celebutante, as well as former boxing champ of Floyd Mayweather Jr. and others. And what that suit alleged is that the defendants had made uh, misleading statements in Twitter and in other social media posts to investors of one specific uh, cryptocurrency token called Ethereum Max. And then there have been lots of other big companies, including, uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, but the fancy French scarf and bag maker Hermes International. They also have been involved in litigation of a different type, where it's patent uh, trademark infringement litigation. Uh, Also, I believe in January, they sued a company called Mason Rothschild, in the federal court in Manhattan, uh, basically claiming that that this other company had sold a non-fungible token, these are non-replicable digital collectible items, and uh, that they were doing so illegally that they were infringing on trademark from this uh, French fashion house. The lawsuits really run the gamut. Is the litigation growing because 
of cryptocurrency, you know, people investing in it because it's a confusing area or because it's a tumultuous time for crypto or all three? You know, it really is all the above, June. And uh, one a common refrain that I heard to this question was, much of this stems from new regulation. And for example, the SEC just within the last few months announced new regulations to try to protect crypto investors. That's going to be happening more and more as uh, both the SEC and the uh, CFTC, Commodity Futures Trading Commission, sort of squabble as to which agency has primacy over this space or whether they should share and both set up different regulatory uh, structures and schemes. But what happens is once these new regulations come into play, then all sorts of uh, different types of legal issues, lawsuits can stem off of them. For example, companies themselves can be targeted by these agencies. So that's one form of legal action. But then often there are these private suits where the parties are flipped and you have sort of startup crypto companies that are taking issue with the regulations and saying we're being unfairly targeted. Um, and our investors are, are doing just fine, and uh, we need to have more free reign as to how we go about our business. Um, so that also comprises some of these suits. And then you have private matters where uh, one business is suing another over alleged crypto-related types of uh, violations, whether it has to do with payments or uh, using um, crypto coins um, or other related issues. The rules for crypto – are they fairly clear? Are they fuzzy? They're, they're fuzzy. And that's why lawyers also, especially in the regulatory and litigation portions of their law firms, are especially looking forward, frankly, to the next several years when a lot of these new regulations are going to be hashed out. And a lot of these firms, including some of the biggest in the country by gross revenue, on behalf of their clients, they're going to be doing things like writing letters to agencies, uh, attending uh, hear public hearings, and really inserting themselves into the process to try to make these regulations basically as uh, client-friendly, meaning as company and corporation-friendly as they can get them. I will say at the same time, June, one interesting thing is that I had several attorneys who are in this space, some uh, at prompting by me, but others sort of unbidden, brought up the notion that what they're trying to do with a lot of these companies, that because it's kind of like this Wild West atmosphere out there, and because it's relatively unregulated space, is they're pushing these companies to try to be the good guys. I mean, that this, that was an exact quote from one of these attorneys who heads up a practice at K&L Gates. Uh, she said, you know, she's telling them you want to be the good guy in this. And what that means is she gave me a couple of examples, pushing them to make sure, for example, on their websites, they have very lengthy question and answer pages. In other words, to make it very customer or investor friendly. Also, for those who have investments or who those who are some sort of subscriber service who are looking to get out to make it easy for them to do so. A lot of companies, and frankly, we all know this as consumers in this day and age, the internet and internet commerce, it's often very difficult to end these kinds of business relationships. Companies make it intentionally so. What they're advising in the crypto space is they're saying, look, regulations are coming down the pipe. It's possible you might be targeted. Let's avoid it. And let's be on the better side of it now, even if it means you make slightly less profit in the, in the shorter term, it's going to be a much healthier strategy and much fairer to those who enlist as clients in the longer term. How many law firms are bolstering 
their crypto practices? So it's a great question. Um, I've had others ask me this in the uh, course of my reporting. It's difficult to know without sort of uh, without doing a count by looking at each web page from each, say, of the top 20, 50, 100 law firms by revenues. But I do believe that it's the majority for sure are in the space um, because what's happening, June, is more and more clients are asking their firms, uh, be they not traditional, they don't necessarily need to be like startup crypto focused companies. They could be banks, they could be other institutions that much more traditional institutions that for the first time are themselves getting questions from their own customers as to how can we incorporate crypto into it? Can we make payments for various goods or services through the use of crypto? And other, not just crypto, but blockchain-related questions come up. And so a lot of these clients are asking their firm. So more the answer is I don't have a, a solid number, but I do know that more and more law firms are getting involved, number one. And, and the second portion of it is, is those that have already been involved are sort of trying to, are bulking up their practices, what they call interdisciplinary practices, where they hold like weekly or monthly calls, just to try to simply get a handle of the workflow that's coming in. Yeah, one lawyer told you we have content coming out of our ears. <laughs> yeah, he was he was kind of blunt, and I loved it. <laughs> I mean, obviously, his work it's terrific. And he was a, a, a very friendly lawyer. And, and, and so he described a little bit about, um, this is Joe Cutler from Perkins Cooey, talking about how they have weekly calls and uh, they have folks from all different types of traditional practice groups that are involved in them to try to get a handle on the types of work, to sign it out if necessary, to try to gin up new work in, in other types of fields if that's in question. And then I didn't get into it with him about, you know, if ethics issues, related issues come up on those calls specifically. But he was one of several that uh, that pointed out that, you know, a, a part of how to go about this right, in dealing with crypto clients is to uh, try to uh, be avuncular in the best possible sense to give the wisest advice, especially for younger startup type companies or those that are new in the space generally that, it behooves them um, to act as reasonable and responsible as possible, especially when you see, you know, uh, different types of uh, charges come down that it makes the news all the time that you've seen, I've seen regarding how crypto is sometimes used um, to defraud people uh, or uh, money laundering schemes um, or the like. And that's why, for example, it might be a little off point with what you were just asking, but the Justice Department and the SEC recently bulked up their respective units to target crypto-related fraud and to try to protect investors in the state. That means more lawyers working in, in the private firms. <laughs> so the crypto practices, do they draw from other departments and do those lawyers then become part of the crypto practice? For example, a tax lawyer. Does that tax lawyer just then work in crypto? And this goes to the notion of um, these firms setting up these um, kind of hybrid interdisciplinary shops or practice or groups, I think they call them, as opposed to dedicated practices. But you you hit it on the head. Um, basically, for, so you have tax lawyers, you have patent and intellectual property lawyers, and those are from very traditional, longstanding, revenue-generating practice groups at big law firms um, who stay within their fields, but who also then simultaneously become part of these crypto groups within the firms because they have lots to contribute and work is coming into them 
they need to know how to play it, um, what best practices are, what the safest and best ways to go batter are, et cetera. So, you know, that's why when I spoke to folks at these firms like K&L Gates, Linklaters, uh, Perkins Cooey, and the list goes on, Latham and Watkins, et cetera, that they're forming these inter- interdisciplinary groups so that they can involve folks uh, from almost virtually every branch of the firm, every practice within it um, is now becoming involved. In your story, you talk about how it's it's a buyer's market for these lawyers at this point. Mm-hmm. Besides law firms, where are they getting offers from? I had one lawyer joke with me. She said, you know, well, we all get calls from headhunters, don't we? And, you know, she laughed at her own joke. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what that means is, for example, the Wall Street Journal came out with a, a good story about, I don't know, three, four weeks ago, uh, which sort of detailed this specific phenomenon which I mentioned in my story also, which has to do with the notion that some of these smaller and mid-sized cryptocurrency uh, companies and exchanges, they're trying to figure out where can you find the best legal talent. And oftentimes uh, that means poaching folks, star players, and they don't necessarily need to be at the partner level from some outside firms. Sometimes that means from their own outside law firm, which can present a bit of a sticky ethical situation, but it happens all the time. Or they find other law firm attorneys, sometimes star associates, um, younger lawyers in, uh, in their 30s, say, or possibly even younger than that, but who are really uh, known for be- developing a strong expertise in the legal side of crypto and who really want to branch out. And there's also the profit motive, not to be you know skeptical or cynical, but uh, it's clear. Lawyers making money? Make- oh. <laughs> How could you I, think I mean, that? Look, <laughs> right. And, and look, many of them have uh, very happy, you know, financial futures should they stay at the firm if they make, if and when they make equity partner, they make a whole lot of money. But that said, it's not of the same level oftentimes as the top general counsel can make, especially if these, if they make the right choice. In other words, if they pick the right company to move to, to, to go to an in-house job, become general counsel to lead their own team. Sometimes these private companies, and definitely not always, others go bust, some of these companies, but those that really succeed uh, over the long haul can find enough investors and support that they eventually go public. And then folks who are in the beginning um, often become, you know, they kind of strike it rich while while this happens, when this happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, it's not like the old days where once you went to a corporation, that was it. Now, you know, you can go back and forth. You can go back to a law firm. In fact, you know, you have certain expertise that law firm partners don't have. Absolutely. No, you touch on a great point. And it, it happens, I think, in, in D.C. where I am, right, at Washington. It's known as the revolving door. And it usually involves the, this sort of revolving door between private law firms and government jobs. And a lot of folks move into government, especially if they're more comfortable with the administration that's in power. And sometimes they get asked to re- to join or to even rejoin the government in different agency capacities, legal jobs. But you're right in, in the notion that it sometimes jumps, sometimes do involve folks going from private law firms to general counsel operations and then back to firms. I will say I haven't heard of that happening as often, but I, I do believe it definitely is a phenomenon. Yeah. A lot it's, of folks trying to position themselves. Crypto mm-hmm. is young yet. Um, we'll see. But considering the recent downturn in crypto, are any law firms rethinking how many attorneys they have dedicated to this? So I, 
I appreciate the question, especially given the most recent news. I mean, I will say I started reporting my story just before this recent mass, somewhat massive downturn in the crypto space where uh, like Bitcoin lost half its value and um, lots of other uh, cryptocurrency coins or exchanges really lost a, a ton of what they were worth in very speedy fashion. I started talking to folks even before that happened, but I talked to several after. And no, if anything, they're doubling down. They, their strong sense is that it is becoming uh, more and more enmeshed in the way that finance is conducted, uh, the way that goods and services are purchased, et cetera, uh, through the use of the blockchain, and that um, these it behooves them to stay strong in this space. Plus, there's an historical precedent for this. Back in, like I believe it was late 2018, early 2019, was when um, this crypto so-called bubble burst uh, the, the first time. And that's when prices that have been going up, up, up crashed very suddenly. I talked to attorneys for a story I did, and they said the same thing that I'm hearing now, which is, no, we see this as a long-term play. And if you look at the long-term trajectory of these prices, they're correctly rising. And, you know, regulators take a, a totally different view. And But that said, um, in terms of the firms and their long-term business prospects, I think they're all in. I, that'll be a whole nother story if and when some major firms really decide to sort of try to even quietly exit out of this. But I don't see that happening anytime soon. Thanks, Sam. That's Sam Skolnick of Bloomberg Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.